My name is Georgie Harper, and it's really my pleasure to welcome our speaker, Mr. Eric Coco, and his wife, Marion. Eric Coco is president and CEO of the Alberta Terrestrial Imaging Center, commonly known as, as ATIC. He provides ATIC with business management and leadership. With experience as a technologist, research scientist, and inventor, and his work in digital imaging and vision-based artificial intelligence has led to numerous scientific publications, patents, and commercial achievements. Today, Eric will discuss what satellite imagery and remote sensing can do for our environment. He will give practical applications of how technology is used in agriculture, forestry, the military, and Alberta's oil and gas industry. He'll give an overview of the impact on our water and the tar sands developments. It's really a pleasure to introduce Eric Coco. Thank you, Georgie, and uh, thank you for inviting me. This is, uh, this is really an honor to be able to present our, our exciting work here in Lethbridge to you. And uh, I just think it's a very brutal thing that you have to listen to me before you eat. I mean, I, I just thought that was, that's cruel. As Georgie says, uh, this is what I'm going to talk about. The, oops. Here we are. Satellite imagery. First, I'm going to talk a little bit about who we are, ATIC, and a little bit about remote sensing. Mostly, I'm going to talk about applications and examples. Can everyone hear me? In the back? Good. The Alberta Terrestrial Imaging Center is uh, an initiative formed between Ionctus Geomatics, a local company, and the University of Lethbridge. We have uh, currently five research scientists and four affiliated people, graduate students, and we're a growing company. We've only really been around functioning for about three years. Our expertise is in applied research using remote sensing and system development, satellite data reception, and spot data sales. Spot refers to spot image, and that's a French, French set of satellites. There's three of them up there, and we have a license to distribute their uh, things their data, their imagery. We're in the information business, and all of this doesn't make a lot of sense, but by the end of my talk, it should. Now, the platforms are anything from ground platforms to aerial, airplane, helicopter, and that one on the far right, the unmanned vehicle systems. But mostly we do satellite imagery, and I think you can look at satellites as being very expensive digital cameras that are put up in space. They cost about $300 million to put up, 
and then you get to use them for the life of their, their um, the, the satellite's life. They are megapixel, and they have incredible spectral capacity, and I'll get into that in a bit. What do we apply this to? Basically, mostly natural resources. If you think of um, management of natural resources, our view is that you can't manage it unless you can count it. So that's our very first premise. So the idea is that we're looking at ecosystems, geological mining, minerals, mine site monitoring, water contamination, agriculture, forestry, fishing, and water. We do, we do very extensive systems development, examples, monitoring systems for applications like looking at the rangeland or looking at these other types of, of things. And again, this is just an introduction. You'll know what this means by the end of the talk. We have invested about a million dollars in new data reception. This is the antenna, that little golf ball or, or soccer ball on the west side. That's where we do our uploading and downloading from the satellites as they come across. I think it's kind of interesting to note that what actually happens is you have the globe. You have north and south pole. The satellites go around like this constantly, and the Earth turns. And as such, it's mapping the Earth constantly. But it needs to be downloading its information constantly because it only has so much memory. And I'm talking huge memory, terabytes of memory for these huge images. Also, we need to send up the information to the satellite because as the satellite's going, it's looking straight down. You also tell it to look over here and look over there, etc. And that's called tasking. So that's what these satellites are doing. We're putting up a new satellite in Inuvik, Northwest Territories, and there's a dish farm that we're actually involved in currently. We've also invested about $2 million in infrastructure. Most of this is really fancy, fancy, very expensive software. A lot of hardware also, about a million dollars worth of spectrophotometers and things like that. And this is all for how we get the information and extract it from the Earth. We have an archive back to 1986 of the complete set of, of imagery of Canada. It's a huge archive, constant images. A lot of them are in very big cassette tapes, digital tapes. They're not, not for music, but for satellite imagery. And um, that's a very valuable resource, especially when you consider a lot of what we're doing is monitoring things over time. If you think in terms of just getting a map, that's a one-shot deal. Monitoring means over time. This slide actually captures what we do very succinctly. It is all about information extraction. And the idea is that you're trying to classify things by characterizing them, identifying them, quantifying them, and portraying both quantity and quality. You have all these different parameters or physical and biochemical ones, and you're looking at change detection. So the satellite is capturing an image, which is really a whole bunch of... of um, spectral image uh, capacities, and you do a bunch of processing and analysis, and you end up with a product. This is a good product. So there's a map, and the map quantifies biomass. It's just as an example. 
This, there will not be a test on this, but bear with me. <laughs> this is uh, hyperspectral imaging. And the whole idea is you have this satellite, and it's pulling up a lot of image, both uh, Im image information, both spatially, meaning point-to-point -point resolution. So like your camera or like your, your computer, you have pixels, little square entities, and those pixels have color. And if you take an example of a, of a color space, people have heard of RGB color. And all that means is you're creating a, a space and it has red, green, and blue. And you have a spectrum of red, a spectrum of blue, and a spectrum of green. And that spectrum just means they're different shades, just like the color patches when you go to the paint store. If you have a very basic one, you actually have what they call 24-bit color. That means that there's 8 bits, red, green, and blue, or 256 possible shades. And if you make that one dimension, then up and then down, you've got a cube, three-dimensional cube, with 17 million color spaces. And that's how you represent basic color. And trust me, that's really basic. That's not super high resolution. Hyperspectral imaging has way more bands, has way more layers than three. And each one of these pixels contains, each pixel contains um, all of those layers. How many layers? Over 400. Very specific layers. We use those layers and we use the different addresses from the, from the non-visible through to the visible, to, through to the infrared. And we use them for different things because they have special characteristics. End of the physics. Application. Okay, this is what it's all about. And I'm going to be firing through some of these annoyingly fast. And, and the purpose is not to go really deep, but the purpose is to skim the surface and give you an idea of just what do you use this stuff? And this is really where, where you'll start understanding how powerful this tool is. Agriculture. We want to assess productivity, manage soil, look at crop stress, land use, etc. An example of that is we've done um, a rangeland cover where we're taking actually the whole of Alberta and... Um, looking at what the rangeland is and looking at it over time. So we're classifying the land. This is just a tiny little section, and um, we're, and we're, we're looking at the change over time. 1999 to 2008, you can see in these two areas, they now have moved to irrigation. So that's, again, a, a way of showing the, the actual change over time. This is um, a change from 2004 to 2003, where you have an area that's now fragmented due to oil exploration. You can see the roads, and you can see the, all the oil wells. And again, this is land use monitoring. Resource management. This is just a field, and we're looking at things like crop cover, or root disease, or water content, or chlorophyll content. And these are um, very powerful agricultural things. We're doing a study up near Bicycle, and this is actually the study area right here. This is airborne. And what we're doing is 
collecting images. This is a swath from an aerial um, capture that we did this summer. This is only showing th three of the actual uh, bands. But what we're doing is we're, we're looking at precision farming because farmers have variable rate technology for their, for their um, implements, for their um, dis distribution both of fertilizer and of disease protection. So you may be spraying for root rot or for a, an insect, etc. But the key is that you can spray only where you need it and only how much you need it. So you want to not over, um, what's the word, over fertilize, let's say, because you're actually going to be burning, you're going to be losing value in your crop. You want to hit that sweet spot. You want to quantify it. So you know exactly what your crop is and where it is. From one meter to the next, it's quite different. And that, all that stuff is available. That information, which is GPS information, is all available. The tractor companies and the implement companies sell this stuff. You also want to know where your yield is. And again, you have all of this data, and we map this, this information. So it's a very powerful agricultural tool, yes, to produce um, lower input costs, to create greater productivity, and for health and safety reasons. You don't want lots of pesticides. You only want as much as you need, that type of thing. So that's a good example. Forestry. So there's so many aspects here, um, forest health, uh, pine beetles, or wi uh, wildfire management. There's just a, you know, looking at who's, who's cutting what and where, and do they actually have a license to, to do that. Other parts are you just want, want to monitor things like forest health. This is a map just simply looking at where is the nitrogen, and that is highly related, actually, to the forest health. And this may have a lot to do, let's say, with uh, being downstream of a mining operation or that type of thing. You also can look at this. This is species classification. And this tells you, uh, gives a different color for where the hemlocks are and where the spruce and where the pine and things like that. Or a single species. This is a Douglas fir. This is where they are. Or looking at the chlorophyll content. And again, I won't get into a lot of the math and everything, but that's all about forest health. You may want to take a look at invasive species, and this is um, a map um, and an ability to, to look at leafy spurge. And so if you're doing, let's say, a biological control of this, and you may have uh, knowledge that at certain areas, certain slopes, let's say, you would use a fungal biological control. That's a fungus that's a pathogen that will go after leafy spurge and knock it out. Or you may use an insect, an insect biocontrol agent that loves eating leafy spurgeon. So you now know where to go. And this is, again, just another application. Mapping. Um, this is just a simple way of taking an area and classifying it. What's a bog? What's a fen? What's a marsh? What's a swamp? They all sound the same, but they're not. And the different species and the different uses and the different habitats are, are all very, very different. This is the large-scale mapping of lentic wetlands. And these are those little duck ponds that dry up in August. But you need to know how many there are, how big they are, are they full, are they empty, and when. And again, over, over, over time. 
this shows you an idea. This is all of southern Alberta stitched together, and then this is one little tiny area here. So you can see the kind of mapping capabilities. I'll just stop here and talk about the fact that a lot of these images are really hard to do justice because dimensions in our human brain have a bit of a fight here. We have to conceptualize things. And um, it's like looking at a bug with a magnifying glass. Sometimes that works really good. But if the bug is a virus, you've got to use an electron microscope. And you're talking about orders of dimensions that are so different. Same thing happens here. I can take a picture from the air, out of an airplane, low-flying of a swamp. But if I'm trying to do all of Alberta, big job. Very different. Very expensive, especially using airplanes. Here's another watershed thing. This is 85 to 2002. This is just, it looks noisy, but it's a very powerful capability. What I'm doing here is I'm showing um, basically forest to pasture. So the change is in red. Forest has now become pasture. Again, just a tool of being able to map it, show it, quantify it, what's happening, when, where is it happening. Fisheries and ocean. Well, there's lots of global change going on, ecological things, hazards, um, things like algal blooms and stuff like that I'll get into. BC, this is how sound looking at different suspended matter or phytoplankton. Looking at kelp beds and the different sediment plumes that are around them because the kelp beds actually do need nutrient-rich areas. Um, freshwater. Um, these are algal blooms um, that happen. They have some really nasty explosive uh, populations that these guys will die. So will ducks and things like that, depending on it. This is my favorite image uh, for this topic. This is Alaska. This is a huge image from NASA. And there's a huge algal bloom going on. And this is back in 96 or 98. Um, these are important. You've all heard of red tide and things like that. These are very important uh, aspects to be able to monitor. But I just think that's a, such a cool image. Mineral exploration. Can you actually mine from space? Yes, you can. Because these things do have surface reflection and, and they are giving off very characteristic stuff. More importantly, mine site monitoring. A couple examples. Sudbury. These are tailing ponds. We need to know what's the chemistry of the tailing ponds. Well, who's in there? What's the acidity? Where is the acidity coming from? Those factors. Because it's all about rehabilitation. What is the impact? This is a gold mine um, near Timmins. What's the impact on the forest? I mean, some of this is uh, high stressed here and then low stress up there. So you need to know and map those those capabilities. You also need to be able to make decisions. Like in 1996, 98, and 99, you're seeing an evolution of rehabilitation of the vegetation being put in and, uh, and the remedial effects in order to bring land back to its original condition. The Canadian Centre for Unmanned Vehicle Systems is in um, Medicine Hat, and it's a national body 
And it's in Medicine Hat for a couple of reasons. One, because Suffield's near it, and two, because, well, probably there's politics involved. But anyways, we're working with them because unmanned vehicles are um, a very powerful tool. It's a $47 billion a year industry, and it's military. Canada has an edge on the rest of the world because we have deregulated space, and we're working together um, with the CCUVS, another agency, um, to develop commercial capacities for these birds. And we are um, working also not just with CCUVS, but also with Transport Canada and other companies that are very interested. You can imagine the costs of putting people in helicopters or airplanes and also the risk that you subject them to if you can have unmanned vehicles you're looking at um, a lot of cost and safety factors. And Canada could drive out a global business out of them. Unmanned vehicles go from a thing that size and buzz around the, the room for an hour to larger ones, of course, in Afghanistan and Iran and places like that. These things are the predators. You always hear about them. This is um, an Israeli heron. Um, actually, this is the heron at Safield. And it's the size of a Cessna or a Piper Cub. It flies at 35,000 feet, and it can stay up for two days and um, go back and forth, back and forth, go all over the place. This is a global hawk, a little bit bigger. This is sort of the ultimate. It can stay up about a week. It flies at 67,000 feet. Gives you a lot of information. Anyways, it's, it's something that we're looking, because we have... Arctic sovereignty to look at. We have the oil sands and all of our resources in the, in the north. Uh, military application. I'll fly over this because some of this is not for distribution, but uh, things like looking at camouflage nets. You may, sorry, may want to look at uh, somebody's nuclear power plant. That's the beauty of space. You can look at them and they can't do anything about it. You can find out exactly what's happening and where it's happening. And they tell you something's happening, but it may not actually be the truth. And um, there's the facility and different discharges, and what's happening there. Um, you may look at uh, the uh, mining sites in foreign countries and the uranium extraction and the different uses of that. This particular image, you can look at 3D. Um, using a military um, quick bird image just to find out and you know they say they're doing one thing and that's what all I'm going to talk about. Now I'm going to talk about the oil and gas industry near and dear to our heart. Of course we've got a very large um, industry and it has applications, loot detection, uh, environmental monitoring, prediction and prevention. We've got the oil sand. In addition to the oil sands, we got 400,000 kilometers of pipelines and 200,000 well sites. A lot to look after. Here's the oil sands in 74, 2002, 2008. And I'm just going to go very quickly through just a bit of a, an image by image of, of the evolution, just to give you a, a taste of the, of the, of the concept. Now, of course, you've all seen National Geographic articles, and they talk. We have 
neat images like this, which also then become this. So it gives you an idea we're talking about a very large area, a lot of disturbance, and you know the pictures speak for themselves. And say, now we're talking about reserves that at present consumption we have about 380, sorry, 280 years worth of oil, second only to the Saudi Arabian deposits. Um, there's going to be more and more demand for this. It's a North American um, source. Again, the operations are... This is what it looked like. There's only five operators back in uh, 98. And today there's 27. Of course, we've been mapping. This is just a mosaic of the kind of uh, maps that we do. This is 98, um, and this is a land classification of what it is, and so here's what's happening. And again, this is, um, this is at a very high elevation view of it. Of course, you can zoom down into it. And this is 2008. Now, the thing to think about it, this, just, this is a couple producers, and this is one area, and this is 4,000 square kilometers, that image. So, that's it. Thank you. Now you get to eat.